Every day we wake up with a new opportunity to pursue something. Uh, What that something is, well, that's different for every person, but hidden within each person's pursuit of something is one common denominator. They want to be happy in their pursuit. Their ultimate pursuit is happiness, which they pursue through the means of something, work or play, uh, wealth or vows of poverty, power or servitude, whatever it may be. Pinocchio and Lampwick, uh, they chose to pursue their pleasure via Pleasure Island. But as they quickly found out, if you know the, the film, Pleasure Island wasn't all that it was cracked up to be. In their ambition for happiness, they chose the wrong something. We all want to be happy, but how we chase it differs. And this is why some people pursue money and others missions. Some pursue fame and others uh, family or friendship. Some pursue power and others people. What if your ambition in life was to pursue your greatest happiness in glorifying God through loving and serving others as selflessly and sacrificially as Jesus did. What if you made that your ambition? I read a John Piper quote recently that absolutely pierced me. It made such an impression on me, I had to make it the background of my laptop. And uh, now the question is, am I going to live it out and not just put it as the background? But, But this pierced me. This rocked me. It went like this. Here is a vocation that will bring you more satisfaction than if you became a millionaire ten times over. Develop the extraordinary skill for detecting the burdens of others and devote yourself daily to making them lighter. Now that's a vision for life. That's a serious vision for life. Jesus lived and died for that vision. Um, If we follow him then shouldn't we be living for that same vision? Shouldn't we just automatically adopt that if Jesus is most important? We should. And if we do, we will be most happy. Chapters 13 through 17 take place the night of the Passover meal in the upper room, Jesus with his disciples, and it was before his crucifixion. And some people call these five chapters the farewell discourse. And we get to sit in on the last moments that Jesus has with his disciples. He taught them, he served them, he loved them. Jesus loved his disciples until the end. He loved them until the end. Before the feast of the Passover, uh, Jesus knew his hour had come to die and to return to his Father. His ambition was to glorify God by loving his own until the end. Uh, His own were those that he loved uniquely until the end, like a husband uniquely loves his wife. By contrast, the world is lost humanity from which Jesus called his own. Read ahead in John 17 to see more fully how Jesus loved his own to the end. God gave Jesus a mission. And sacrificial love was integral to that mission. God is love. So naturally, Jesus loved his own perfectly from beginning to end. Uh, Later at supper, Jesus said, as the Father has loved me. Now think about that. That's divine love, Father to Son. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. That's intense. 
Jesus loved his own with divine love right down to the end. Right down to the end. Which in Greek could refer to his death or the quality of his love as in he loved them with completeness or he loved them with perfection. Both are true whichever way you go. But during this supper, an evil counterplot was developing. Verse 2, during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. During this famous meal, so many people know about this, during this famous meal, satanic forces were at work. The devil had already planted a satanic scheme into the heart of Judas Iscariot, a conspiracy of all conspiracies to betray the Son of God. Satan planted this conspiracy into Judas's heart. But Judas was not passive as some helpless pawn. Judas had a sinful nature like everyone does. He was dead in sin. Judas willed to conspire with Satan. And Jesus knew Judas's heart from the beginning. He even chose him. He chose him as one of the 12, knowing that Judas would betray him in time. As many people do, Judas loved his sin more than he loved Jesus. By his unbelief, Judas left himself susceptible to the influence of Satan in his life. Now, I admit, this might be a hard pill to swallow, but think about it. Everyone living in sin with no true repentance and faith is actually living for Satan. Many really, really nice people live for Satan every day of their life. It might not look like they do, but if they're not living for Christ, if they're not turning from their sin and trusting in the gospel, they are indeed living for Satan. 1 John 3.8 gives it straight. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Living in sin is satanic. It's satanic. Satan does not work in any heart that has not already been cultivated to bear his fruit. Judas chose to betray Jesus Christ. However, Jesus also called Judas the son of destruction. He called him a devil. Jesus knew from the beginning Judas would betray him because Judas was the anointed, or not the anointed, the appointed betrayer. The appointed betrayer, that's John 6, 64. Jesus said Judas was lost in order for the scripture to be fulfilled. Think about that. Judas was part of God's sovereign plan from the very beginning. It makes the love and selflessness of Jesus even more stunning in the moment where he washes his disciples' feet. So during supper, verse 3 Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. Jesus has command over everything. Jesus has command over everything. Let's say that you work at Johnson & Johnson in Lititz. Does anyone work at Johnson & Johnson in Lititz? All right. Um, one day, you notice someone approaching your workstation. Okay, you're working there and... And you look up, and here it's, it's Alex Gorski. 
the CEO and chairman of Johnson & Johnson, who happens to make over $20 million. He introduces himself, he rolls up his sleeves, and he kind of pushes you gently aside, and he starts to do your work. He does your job for the day, and he works the whole way through, and you just stand there, and you're watching Alex Gorski do your job, and, and along the way, He's like giving you some tips of how to increase your efficiency at Johnson & Johnson to be a better employee, and he's modeling that for you, giving you good tips. He encourages you in your work and in your job, and that would be pretty cool if you think about it. That would be a day that you wouldn't so, so soon forget. Think about it. The most powerful and influential man in the corporation comes down from, I don't know what his office is like, but let's say it's plush in New Jersey, and he comes to serve you. Verse 3 says, The Father had given all things into his hands. Jesus possesses supreme authority and command. In John 17, 2, Jesus said, God gave him authority over all flesh. In Matthew eleven twenty seven, Jesus said, All things have been handed over to me by the Father. Jesus knew that he would endure the cross, but he also knew that he was in charge, that he was in command, that he had all authority given to him. He was supreme. On top of that, Jesus had come from God. God the Father sent God the Son to condescend in human flesh to serve and to give his life for others. Jesus is astounding. Sovereign kings... Sovereign kings do not condescend to serve and give their life for common peasants, suffering peasants, poor peasants. Jesus did. Jesus did. Jesus was also going back to God, and as is commonly understood, you have to think this through, Jesus didn't go to hell to suffer and pay off our sin debt. The, the Apostles' Creed can be a little misleading when it says that he descended into hell, meaning he descended into death. He died, a legitimate death. He paid our debt in full on the cross and went where? Back to God. That's what this is saying. Verse 1 says Jesus would depart out of this world to the Father. In John 16, 28, Jesus said, I am leaving the world and going to the Father. Back in John 7, 33, Jesus said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. Jesus would die and would return to the Father. And this sovereign Jesus, this sovereign Son of God, rose from suffer, a supper, and he became as a slave, washing his disciples' feet. Jesus cleansed his disciples' feet and hearts. The sovereign Christ rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Slaves washed feet. And yet God, in the flesh, took off his hematia, or outer garments, still wearing his under tunic, and he wrapped a towel around his waist, and he washed the disciples' feet. 
Water and wash basins were kept in homes for this very purpose of washing feet. So Jesus used them. The dining tables were really low, probably not like your, your dinner table. They were really low. People reclined to eat and their heads were near the food on the table and their feet were politely resting away and out from the, the table. Jesus poured water into a wash basin and circling around the table, he began to selflessly serve them. He did what none of his disciples wanted to do. He became as a slave and he washed their soiled feet. The Christ, the eternal Messiah, became as a slave and washed his disciples' feet. That's unthinkable. They must have been sitting there completely stunned at what Jesus was doing. Verse 6, he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Peter was stumped. Likely the others sitting around the table were also stumped. The Christ, the Son of the living God, the Holy One, washing his feet? Peter was aghast. Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Now that's an interesting line. Something more significant than feet washing was going on here. Something much more significant. They knew plenty about feet washing, but didn't know what Jesus was really doing. Only after Jesus died, only after he rose again, only after the Holy Spirit was sent, back, uh, sent to them in order to teach them, would they understand the fullness of what Jesus Christ was doing in that moment. Now, let me ask you this. Be honest about this. When you were growing up, did your parents always make sense to you? I think some of us were, you know, what planet are you from, mom and dad? Like sometimes, wasn't it that that's how it was? It was like, oh my goodness, my parents are insane. And they seemed so crazy at the time. Like they were just going berserk. They tell me no at everything. And, and we're wrestling with this until we got older. Is this not how it works? I think it started hitting me in my 20s, my early 20s. Man, my parents are wise. They, they, they knew what they were doing. And we see how in touch they really are. What didn't the disciples understand that they would understand later? Later. What was that? Keep reading. Verse 8. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And, and I wish you could see this in the Greek because it's a double negative, meaning that it's emphatic. Like he is saying, no, never will you wash my feet. Not in forever will you ever wash my feet. Peter was totally that kind of guy. I respect Peter. He was against this, and, uh, and he made his opinion known. However, Jesus responded to pe Peter. How he responded to Peter will, Peter will help us figure out exactly what Jesus was talking about when he said that they don't understand, but they would later. This is how Jesus responded to Peter. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. That's intense. That, that, that's no small statement. You have to read into what he's saying there. Matthew Henry explained that having no share with Jesus is having no interest in Jesus, no communion with him, no benefit by him. Henry said, to have a part in Christ or with Christ has all the happiness of a Christian bound up in it, 
to be partakers of Christ, to share in those inestimable privileges which result from a union with him and relation to him, end of quote. So if Jesus were merely washing the disciples' feet just to show love to them, he's just merely washing their feet, just going to show you that I can serve, just going to give you an example of something to do, it would be very, very strange for Jesus to tell Peter he wasn't saved if he didn't wash his feet. Are you tracking with me there? It would be very bizarre for him to say, I need to wash you, your feet, um, or else you have no share with me. You're not united to me. You're not saved if I don't now wash your feet. That would be weird. Um, Jesus was not meaning that. Something else was going on. Do you find it interesting that Jesus does not use the word feet in verse 8? He said, if I do not wash you, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Peter needed to be washed. And here is what I think Jesus was really doing. Jesus washed their feet to point them to the spiritual cleansing they would receive through his crucifixion. If Jesus didn't wash them of their sin, they would have no share with him. The blood of Jesus shed on the cross was the means of their purification from sin and guilt and shame, and they would understand that eventually after the Holy Spirit came and taught them all things, John 14, 26. Jesus wasn't simply cleansing and cleaning and washing their feet. He was cleansing their hearts. He was cleansing them from sin. William Hendrickson explained, quote, Jesus, however, is constantly thinking about the whole work of humiliation of which this feet washing is only a part, end of quote. The shameful cross reveals most fully the humiliation, the humility of Jesus, and washing their feet served to point there to the cross and his Humility there. Washing feet was an illustration of the great humiliation of the washing of the cross. Psalm 51, verse 2 and verse 7 say it well. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. The greatest need of the disciples was to have their sin and guilt and shame washed away. That is what they needed most. And that was how Jesus served them. He made them clean. That is how they would have a share with Jesus. That is what Jesus was doing in the upper room. Paul said that when our Savior appeared, he saved us by the washing of regeneration or new birth and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. The most remarkable humility is not that um, Jesus bowed down before them, in a sense, and washed their feet. The most remarkable humility is not in the wash basin and in the towel, but in the blood and in the nails. Now, Peter was extreme. He was the kind of guy that was like the kid who is told, you can't have ice cream until you finish your dinner. And so the kid starts shoveling the food in, and he's got bulging cheeks, and he's chewing in order to get to that ice cream. He was like radical. I'm just going to do it. And that's kind of how Peter was. And 
And so Peter heard Jesus say, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And he wanted to share with Jesus. He was not going to miss that share. And so this is what he said. This is awesome. Verse 9, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Wash more of me, Jesus. I want this share. Well, Peter was clueless, but his heart was with Jesus. Listen to Philippians 2, 6 and 8. Actually, sometimes look it up. It summarizes this event, I think, really well. God the Son condescended in human flesh and made himself nothing, taking the form of a slave and humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. This is what the the feet washing was all about. Folks, consider this carefully. We have no share with Jesus until he washes our feet, until he washes all of us and makes us spiritually clean on the cross. You need him to wash you. You need Jesus to wash all of you. Verses 10 and 11 explain this even further. Jesus said to them, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. Jesus said to all of his disciples, you, that's plural, you are clean, but not every one of you. And I don't think that he meant Judas needed some soap and deodorant. I think he was talking about something different. As verse 11 explains, Jesus spoke metaphorically. He used wash and clean to describe spiritual cleanness and union with him. Eleven of the disciples were spiritually clean. Eleven of them were given new hearts. Eleven of them were justified by their faith in Jesus Christ. Eleven of them loved Jesus Christ more than anything And one of them, Judas, was not spiritually clean, was not made righteous by Christ through saving faith. Judas didn't truly believe. Judas sat at that supper with betrayal and greed in his heart, not faith and not love. And you know what is haunting about this? He looked just like all the other disciples. Nobody knew it was Judas. He duped everybody except Jesus who stared right into his heart and knew exactly who Judas was. Judas wasn't fooling Jesus. He might have fooled everyone else. What made Judas unclean was his unrepentant sin. His sin. You got to remember verse 2 and keep that in mind. Let's break verse 10 down. Jesus said, the one who has bathed does not need to wash, but is completely clean. To be completely clean is to be justified, to be saved, to be washed by the blood of Jesus through faith and thereby made holy. To be holy. Everyone who has bathed has been saved. They don't need to be saved again. They don't need to be washed again. They were already washed. They were already justified. They were already saved. They don't need to be saved again. The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. Now, why mention feet? Well, followers of Jesus still sin. You should have been at class today because we were getting into some of this. 
That was good. Thank you, Doug, for that. Followers of Jesus still sinned. They are cleansed and made holy by God. So believer, you are cleansed and you are a holy one. You are a hagios. You are sanctified. You have been set apart for God. You are holy. That is a once and done act that God does. Yet we still sin, don't we? We still veer off. And so we need continual cleansing along life's way like washing feet but not taking a bath to wash all of us. You see what Jesus is doing there? He's talking in metaphor. Except for his feet refers to the process of sanctification or God making us more like Jesus every day. We are holy, and yet when we move forward, we get involved with sin and we need to go back to God and he washes us again as we go along the way. That's like getting your feet washed instead of taking an entire bath. The significance of Jesus' washing the disciples' feet was more than humble service. It was more than, wow, that was really cool that he knelt down. There's something a lot bigger going on. It was a picture of the gospel. The greatest ambition of Jesus was to glorify God by selflessly and sacrificially loving and serving others. That was his ambition. That's what he lived for. I want to glorify God, and I want to give myself every day for other people, and I'm just going to pour myself out while I'm here on this earth. Verse 12 When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You think they understood? They didn't get it. So he explained, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. So let's unpack that. Jesus was their didaskalos, their teacher, their rabbi, the one that brought the wisdom and the truth of God to them. He was their kurios, their Lord, their master, the one with divine authority over their lives. He knew it. They knew it. And Jesus made a great point. If he the teacher, if he the Lord, if he the master could glorify God by selflessly and sacrificially loving and serving others, how much more should his followers serve each other and and give their lives for each other? The greatest ambition of Jesus was to glorify God, and he did this by taking the form of a slave and sacrificing himself for the benefit and blessing of others. Jesus said that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This was his ambition. This is what Jesus got up in the morning to do, to give his life for other people. I don't know what kind of bed he slept in, but when those feet hit the floor or he rolled out or whatever was going on there, he went to work at laying himself down for other people giving himself and giving and giving and giving until it took his life. Jesus was the happiest man that ever lived. Did you ever think that Jesus pursued his own joy? Hebrews 12 verse 2 says, Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. Why go to the cross? Why do it, Jesus, for this miserable people that reject you at every last turn? Why endure the cross? Joy, happiness, and fulfilling the will of his Father. 
He just was so resolved to do whatever God wanted him to do. So I want you to uh, apply that ambition of Jesus directly to your life. This is a very easy application. Happiness should be your greatest ambition in life. You should want to be the most happy. But before we see that in the things of this world, here is what happiness is, to glorify God by loving and serving others as selflessly and sacrificially as Jesus. That's happiness. At some point in your life, you have to ask yourself the question, do I really want to be happy? Like, am I really trying to be happy here? Do I want my life to be fulfilling and content and joyful? And do I want to maximize that joy? Do I want to make sure that whatever I do, it is not distracting or taking away from my joy in any way? Are you serious about being happy? If you are, and if you do want to be really happy, you will find your greatest happiness if you pursue what Jesus pursued. We should take lessons from the happiest man that ever lived. Want to be happy? Then make it the ambition of your life to make God look awesome by how you radically love and serve others, how you radically pour yourself out day after day for the benefit and joy of others. The happiest people are always the people who make it their ambition to serve just like Jesus. Test this in the world, and I can honestly say the people who are so consumed with themselves and somehow getting ahead are miserable people. I've met miserable people, but the happiest people I've met seem to be sometimes in other countries who have very little, but they've got Jesus, and they they just are beaming, and it's like, how? This place is awful, and they live there every day, and we come back to our palaces and find we're not any happier. Every day, people pursue stuff that takes joy from them and doesn't give it. You want to be happy? Make the ambition of Jesus your ambition, your greatest ambition in life, and you will be on the road to your greatest happiness. Verse 15, Jesus said, for I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done. You follow his example. You do what he has done when you love and serve others with his kind of humility, radical humility, selflessness, sacrifice, You can put, right now, erase whatever you have in the number one spot on your to-do list and make this the top of your to-do list. Love Jesus and live just like Jesus and do just like he did. Jesus wants you to follow his example. Look at verse 16. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant, or you could say slave, that would be an appropriate uh, translation, is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. No disciple is greater than Jesus. Jesus wanted them to know in that moment that he was the greatest and that radical sacrifice and love were not below him. Therefore, radical sacrifice and love were not below his disciples. Here is the Christian life in a nutshell. We can make it weird things and we can get confused. Here's what the Bible says the Christian life is all about. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. 
And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Likewise, he who was free when called is a slave of Christ. If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a slave of Christ. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as slaves of God. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Slaves of righteousness. Being a Christian means Jesus bought you. He paid for you. You belong to him. Christians are ready to serve their master as slaves of righteousness. We start seeing people that aren't too into being a slave and answering to their master Jesus. What does that mean about someone? Christians no longer live as slaves of sin, but slaves of Christ. He is master and possesses supreme command over our lives, and this is the way to our greatest happiness. How to be happy is to be a slave to Christ. And when I hear slaves of righteousness, what is involved in being righteous? And I think that's happiness and joy. Imagine being a slave to joy. I just serve joy all the time. Can't get away from being completely happy and fulfilled. I'll be a slave to joy. Don't you want to be a slave to righteousness? Look, everyone is a slave. All of you in here are a slave. Everyone has a master, either Christ or sin. Christ or sin. Christians make it their ambition to find happiness in emulating and pleasing their master, Christ. Non-Christians make it their ambition to find happiness in emulating and pleasing their master, sin. Sin is temporary happiness. Christ is everlasting happiness. Slave of Christ, I'll take it. I'll have that brand. Do you love Jesus enough to make his life's ambition your life's ambition? Do you love him enough to glorify God by selflessly and sacrificially loving and serving others? You see, many people want to be saved by Jesus, but they don't want to follow Jesus. And you can't have Jesus as Savior if you do not always also have Jesus as Lord and Master and Commander. It goes one and the same. More than anything else, do you want to be just like Jesus? Would you be honest with yourself? Do you want to be just like him? That, that your entire life is just caught up in being like one person, Jesus, and he's going to help me do it. And so that is my ambition, and I want to live just like him. Every day, you and I are striving for something. Are you striving to be exactly like Jesus? If so, there is something really good in store for you. Verse 17 is a reward for doing as Jesus said. Verse 17 tells you exactly why obeying Jesus is best for you. Listen, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Blessed. The word for blessed is makarioi, which means transcendent happiness. If you do what Jesus said in John 13, you will be most 
happy. You will be happy if you humble yourself and devote your life to serving others in a way that makes Christ look glorious. It's not just go do good deeds, it's go do good, good deeds in a way that makes Christ look like he really is glorious. James said, be doers of the word, not hearers only. He said that a doer who acts will be blessed or happy in his doing. It would be worth your time sometime. Really study Psalm 119. Just park in that passage for a long time. But verse 1 says this, that those who walk in the law of the Lord are blessed or happy. Verse 2 says, blessed or happy are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. Jerusalem Church we absolutely should make it our primary life's ambition to be happy, to pursue our greatest happiness. But we need to be careful to define our happiness as Jesus defines happiness. To pursue happiness like Jesus pursued happiness. John Piper said, you will find the deepest joys in life You will find that the deepest joys in life are not when people are hailing you in your status, but when they are helped by you in your service. Jesus is no dummy. He is not starry-eyed. He knows what maximum happiness is because he has it. And he can help you get it as well to be most happy. Jesus knew what he was doing. And I want you to think about this. Jesus knew Judas. He knew what Judas would do. He knew Judas was an enemy. He knew Judas was living for Satan. He knew Judas was greedy. He knew Judas was not clean. And yet Jesus washed his feet. He lowered himself at the feet of the man who would betray him and became as a slave. Not to make Judas spiritually clean as he did the others. No, Judas was the son of destruction. He was a devil. But to show that humility and love even extend to the worst of enemies. Please consider that. Jesus chose his words carefully. He said, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Jesus wasn't speaking about Judas. Judas was the odd man out. Jesus was not Judas' master. He was not a slave of Christ. He was a slave to his sin. He wasn't blessed. Judas was cursed. Yet Jesus knew exactly who Judas really was. Jesus chose Judas as one of the 12, knowing Judas would betray him. That's John 6, 64. Why? Jesus knew what he was doing. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. The scripture needed to be fulfilled. Listen to what Psalm 41, 9 says. Even my close friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Isn't that strikingly familiar? That's because Judas fulfilled Psalm 41.9 just as God had planned it. Jesus continued, verse 19, I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Or you, you could just say that you may believe that I am. Isn't that interesting? Judas's treachery would actually serve to substantiate Jesus as the Christ 
and would serve to strengthen the faith of the 11 disciples. By describing the betrayal of Judas before it took place, he called it perfectly. And as he did that, Jesus authenticated his Messiahship, thus proving his divine foreknowledge and revealing God's sovereignty. He then said to them, verse 20, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. He would send them out as apostles equipped with the gospel to preach and teach the gospel. And whoever received them, the gospel through them, would receive God because whoever receives Jesus receives God. Ten of the eleven true disciples in that upper room died as martyrs for Jesus. They loved Jesus so much that they glorified God by loving and serving others like Jesus to the point of martyrdom to the point of laying their life down for other people, and they were happy to do this. They remembered the words of Jesus. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. They became martyrs out of joy, I believe, because they wanted to give their life for the cause of Jesus Christ, so they gladly laid it down because they knew they would be most happy if that's how they lived. Every day we wake up with an opportunity to pursue something, And be very honest with yourself. If you are unhappy and discontent right now in your life, do you think it may be because you've never developed the extraordinary skill for detecting the burdens of others and devoted yourself daily to making them lighter? Maybe that's why you're not really that happy right now. And maybe that's why a lot of the people you see serving others are really happy. Maybe you're too focused on you and people serving you. I'm tempted with that all the time. What might happen in and through this church if we started to have such an intense love for Jesus Christ that we poured ourselves out in service for others so that they could see the glory of Jesus Christ? Maybe revival would break out. Maybe all of Mannheim would change because of this church loving and serving others like Jesus. Maybe we would experience more joy and satisfaction in God here than what we ever have before. And it just breaks loose because we're willing to make the ambition of Jesus Christ our ambition in life. And then we start seeing other people find their greatest joy and pleasure and happiness and contentment and fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And it just fuels us even more to get even happier. And more people are getting happier in Christ. And we're getting happier. And and something takes off. What is one thing, this is so simple, one thing that you need to change right now in your life to be more happy in God? My question is, will you change it? Will you change it? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your clear word. It's a piercing word. Um, This account of you serving the disciples is, is so deep. It's deeper than what I thought before I started to really study it this week. It it is deep. The feet washing is about the gospel. I didn't see that before. I just thought it was something Jesus was doing to, to show humility and sacrifice and in washing their feet, but it goes so much deeper. It's a picture of the spiritual cleansing we have in Christ in the gospel. So God, I pray that we are so captivated by that 
imagery of Jesus going to work for us, washing us clean, that we will then be so overcome with joy in him that it spills out into making other people happy and laying our lives down for them. God, I confess I am a selfish man, a self-centered, prideful man who thinks way too much about himself, who thinks way too... God, I miss things that I could so obviously help someone else and I completely don't even see it. And sometimes other people will see it, they'll do it, and then I'll feel guilty that I missed it. God, we, we need your help on this. Help us to want to make it our life's ambition to lay our lives down and sacrifice for other people, to pursue our joy by being just like Jesus. God, would you bring revival to this church? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.